As I told a friend of mine once who asked me why I joined Mercury, I think if I'd been alive 150 years ago, I might have wanted to go out and help open up the West. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Wow. Yeah, baby. Do you know who that one is? Big Gus. Big Gus Grissom. The great Gus Grissom, who unfortunately died in the Apollo 1 fire, but was born on this very day, April the 3rd, 1926. American colonel, pilot and astronaut. I mean, uh, not too shabby, eh? Nope. Space legend. Space legend. Trailblazer. How are you, Matthew? Are you keeping well in the lockdown, sir? I am keeping well in the lockdown. I'm uh, I'm very, very fortunate to be on the coast. And Rumour has it, Matt, that you found a secret beach. I Is this found true? a secret beach. Yeah, I did. I, I assume you weren't wanting to be disclosing the location. No, no but it's about half a mile from my house and... Yes, it's totally secluded. You have to walk down some pirate steps, I tell ye. My God. You enter onto this extraordinary alien landscape. It's unbelievable. That's what I love about Ilfracombe and the surrounding area is these alien landscapes that you get from the strange way that the rock juts up from the ground. It's amazing. Well, Matt, if I know our ten, literally tens of listeners in Ilfracombe area... Mm-hmm. Um, they'll all be trying to find the secret beach. So yeah, well, they can they can hunt. Be they can hunt. They can hunt. Uh, Jamie, talking of uh, English legends. Oh yeah. Did you know that Tim Peake is about to star on the One Show? Get out of here! What as a as a host? Not as a host. He's going to be one of these roaming reporters who's going to oh. give a little film clip each week. Well, I love that. Yeah, the first one's going to... Guess what the first one's going to be about? Uh, Space. Well, (laughs) yeah, obviously they're all going to be about space, Jamie, because he's Tim Peake, the astronaut. Let me guess, Matt. Is it going to be about self-isolating? It is going to be about self-isolating. Oh, what a guess. So, yes, so he's going to be drawing from his six months on the ISS to help people get through these dark times. Absolutely. Well, he he knows a thing or two about being locked up, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, it's it's amazing, isn't it? Because you think the ISS isn't really bigger than your house, and at least you're locked away with your family. You can go for walks to secret beaches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. Imagine being stuck on the International Space Station for six months. It it does put it in perspective, doesn't it? It does actually. Yeah. So there we go. Make sure you check that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite excited about that. The first time, I, I think this will be the first time I've watched the one show for many, many years. Matt, if I said to you that Venus is going to appear inside the Seven Sisters, what would you say to me? I'd say this is one of the most exciting uh, astronomy events for a while. I quite oh. love, A, the Seven Sisters, or the Pleiades, as, as some people know it. One of the most beautiful objects in the night sky. What a cluster. Beautiful, isn't it? And uh, I only, <laughs> it was only while I was looking at this that I realised that um, uh, 
you know the car manufacturer Subaru? I do. Think about their uh, logo, and their logo is is a little star cluster. And the Japanese, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, the Japanese for Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, is Subaru. The constellation was originally called Mutsuruboshi, meaning six stars. And you'll notice in the Subaru logo, it only has six stars. So for some reason, the Japanese could only count six stars, whereas the rest of us could count seven. So that's interesting, isn't it? That is interesting. Oh, God, I but, love Japan. Yeah. So on the on t- tonight. On the 3rd of April, Venus will actually have be inside that cluster. So it's a really great chance to go out. And if you, if you don't know what the Pleiades is, when you look up in the night sky, it's the tiny saucepan, really, really bright bunch of stars that looks beautiful. But through a telescope and through a powerful telescope, you can actually see that it's slightly nebulous as well. I tell you what, and we've been having, luckily, some rather clear skies of late, haven't we? Yeah, we really have. And... Uh, and as a result, there's been some beautiful pictures from England of the ISS and Starlink going over. So there we go, <laughs> like streams of Starlink and the ISS going over, uh, with uh, Venus often photo bombing in that as well. So, yeah, Matt, do you know what was born sixty years ago this week? I do because I did a little Instagram post of it because I there I, we go. I, I stumbled upon the TV picture of the Earth from space, from a satellite Boom. called Tiros. And it's considered, yes, the, the, the birth of modern meteorology. Space Happy birthday. Weather reporting. Yes, the first Earth sensor, basically. Isn't that, isn't Matt, that I, I am a SpaceX addict. I mm. need my fix. What can you tell me? Uh, uh, SpaceX, the boss is Elon Musk. Drink. One, yeah, 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 right, right. Okay. What else? No, I can tell you. This week, it's been a, it's been a, a Boston week for uh, uh, SpaceX. They uh, a NASA chose them for one of these missions to the moon with this new bigger version of Dragon, a kind of elongated version of Dragon, which I elongated. Think, uh, good. That's exciting, and I think that's been covered pretty much by everyone else. So I'm not going to. Bore on, although we should maybe have a sort of deep dive on that on another episode. Hundred um, percent. But yes, they also released a users a user guide for their Starship rocket, Oof. and it's got some numbers in there which are really interesting. So cool, a f- fully reusable Starship can deliver a hundred metric tons to LEO. 21 tonnes to geostationary transfer orbit. That is monstrous. That's, that's big. Yeah, that's 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 big. Um, of course, one of the really cool things about it is it can refuel in space, so then it could take another 100 tonnes out into the solar system. And as we'll that'll, see in a second, that'll that, keep that, might it going quite, for a while. that might be quite cool. Um then you've got the, the size of the actual payload fairing, eight meters wide and twenty-two meters long. So that is that's like a massive shed. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely huge. And of course, it could carry up to a hundred people with private cabins, large common room areas, storage, 
solar storm shelters and viewing galleries. And I'm lighter than the ordinary human, so could probably have 200 of me. Oh, yeah, you could have, you could probably have, yeah, 150 Franklins. Yeah, that's all you need to, you know, colonise Mars. Yeah. Jamie, what, yeah. What, looking at how uh, Elon Musk is building these starships out in the desert, and we've now got uh, SN3 looking pretty pretty good, actually. Um, how, when do you think we'll see the inaugural maiden voyage with a super heavy and a starship on top? When do you think that's going to happen? Oh, you know what? I'm going to go with 2023. Ooh. See, I did a what poll. What about yourself? Well, I did a poll with the patrons because I was interested to see, you know, how enthusiastic they were. And of course, everyone's very enthusiastic about Starship. Let's face it. Yeah. This, this is a game changer. I mean, it when it does fly, it really will be absolutely monumental. It's I, I so the patrons think 2022. They were all coming in with 2022. Wow, that's early. So a, a couple of years away and I mean, wow, that would be absolutely incredible. However, I'm going with 2025. It's probably a safer number. Well, I definitely, I would much, I'd be much more comfortable if my money was on that. So, well, let's see. In 2025, on the maiden voyage, I'm going to be sitting here all smug. Well, we're recording this now, Matt. So Exactly. exactly. I'll 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 be able to play this back. You play it on a loop. <laughs> through, a, through a PA system out my window. Yeah, just to annoy yeah. the patrons. <laughs> They're already annoyed with me. Yeah, of course um, they are. If you'd like to be annoyed, please go to W... No, we'll do that later. <laughs> um, I tell you what, it's been actually really quite a fascinating week for uh, patrons, etc. We've had a few new patrons. Welcome on board. Oh, One blimey. of those. Well, pat- that is surprising in this strange time. Welcome. Well, one of the patrons, Tupper, is. I'm going to play a little uh, interview with him. That is excellent news. We are going to be speaking to him. Well, I'm going to play the little interview, Jamie. I did. I did. Here we go. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm I'm on the phone to Tupper Hyde, who who contacted the podcast about uh, sock burning. Hi, Tupper. (laughs) How how are you? Hey, good, Matt. I'm calling you from uh, Severna Park, Maryland. It's right near Annapolis. It's uh, cloudy here, and we're all um, shut down from going into work. I'd already got some um, emails with voice voice readings of Annapolis that we <laughs> horrendously got wrong. <laughs> so, apolo- yeah, well, Anna- Annapolis. Right? Annapolis, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think we called it uh, An- Annapolis or something like something daft like that. I can't, I can't remember. It seems so obvious now you say it. Apologies. Annapolis likes to call itself the sailing capital of the world. They, they probably compete with, uh, you know, Australia and Newport, Rhode Island, and San Diego for that title, but certainly one of the most uh, sailing-intensive places around. So this sock-burning tradition started with this guy who worked in a boatyard in 1977, a particularly cold winter, and uh, was uh, sick of wearing these socks and decided to uh, burn them and uh, celebrate with some beers. And, And that tradition has continued in Annapolis, but also sort of among the boating community worldwide on the first day of spring. And so no one wears socks until it becomes autumn, is it? (laughs) 
I, I would say uh, no one wears socks with their boating shoes. Uh, uh, certainly you wear socks if, if you go to work or if you're doing uh, things with work boots on or whatever. But uh, boating shoes have like a, a light sole without a, a black bottom so it doesn't you know, mark the, hmm. the surface of the sailboat. And uh, people are usually sock-free in their boating attire, right? <laughs> well, it's confirmed, and, and Jamie's skepticism is, uh, is uh, laid to rest. What do you do for a living? Because this, this is probably more interesting. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the overlap in the Venn diagram between sailors in Annapolis and people who listen to uh, your podcast is probably pretty thin. But um, <laughs> I'm uh, the chief engineer at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. So, yeah, so uh, uh, currently I'm assuming you're not going into work. Yeah, that's right. I've been on work from home since uh, about March 11th. NASA had this pretty good response of stage one, two, three, four, that they've been uh, pretty good about communicating to everybody. Uh, different uh, states and different cases have appeared. Each of the centers has progressed through the one, two, three, four. I think all the centers are either three or four now. Three is you can still come on center to work on uh, certain projects if if you can't do it remotely and four is the center is closed and there's pretty much no work going on at the center other than the minimal staff to keep the satellites operating and to keep the uh, facilities safe. It was a similar sort of situation to when the government had their shutdown. Is that right? Yeah, uh, obviously for, for very different reasons. We've still got 95% or so of the workforce still doing everything they can uh, remotely. I've been on Lots of uh, telecons virtually over the last two weeks, some with, you know, hundreds of people. So Yeah. Well, well what are you working on? What do you normally work on over at Goddard? Uh, the, the big project that you'll be familiar with is JWST, James Webb Space Telescope. All of its hardware is now out at uh, the Northrop Grumman facility in El Segundo. Wow. So that, that must have been a pretty special project to be working on. Yep. It probably is the nation's largest uh, science project, <laughs> yeah. and going to going to return great science. Looking back to the light of the first stars turning on. How long have you been working on James Webb? <laughs> I was a grad student uh, when I worked on some concepts for what was the next generation space telescope that became Webb. So that goes all the way back to uh, 1995. So what's that? Twenty twenty five years. Wow. Yeah, you, you're heavily invested in, in James Webb then. You know, our center does um, a lot of projects. We probably have uh, 40 or 50 projects going at any given time. Earth science, uh, the weather satellites for NOAA, heliophysics, astrophysics, um, including James Webb, and planetary science. We build a lot of instruments and some of the missions that go out. OSIRIS-REx, which is at Bennu, Right now, keeps making lower and lower passes over all its uh, candidate landing sites and getting set up, which uh, to, to make this tag sample grab, which is going to be a little bit more sporty than uh, was originally envisioned. Of course, yeah. Well, yeah. Can you explain why it's a little bit more sporty? <laughs> you know, obviously, nobody had visited an asteroid like Bennu before, the ones that had been visited before had big pockets of uh, 
more sandy type soil, and that's what they expected there. Uh, so you could have a fairly large uncertainty on coming down to make the tag and still be assured that you were going to get, uh, you know, some gravelly, rocky type uh, sample. But when they got to Bennu, it's much more bouldery and less uh, gravelly than anticipated. So picking a site where you can get access to a good sample while avoiding, you know, uh, house-sized boulders that are on each side of you um, meant that the tag had to be at a much tighter uncertainty radius uh, than what was done before. So the trick to fixing that was to navigate off the features um, as you're coming down. Um, obviously, the, the you know the light delay from Benno to Earth and back is is too far to uh, joystick it in with somebody on the ground. But using um, natural feature tracking, um, you can pick up the objects uh, in the camera and in 3D as you come down. And uh, all the modeling says we can, we can hit that tighter circle now. So. When pressed to solve a problem, people get creative, right? As a, as an engineer, do you get to put on the hairnet and walk around a lot of these uh, spacecraft and actually get up close and personal? Not as much as I'd like. You know, the technicians are, are the experts, and uh, they're the ones who are actually putting the pieces together. Some of that happens at Goddard, and some of that happens at the various uh spacecraft um, industrial sites around the country. Um, OSIRIS-REx had all its uh, final assembly at, at Lockheed out in Colorado. But for the things that happen um, at, at Goddard, I try to get in and, and get a look, but I'm not uh, directly contributing, so uh, no sense having uh, extra people in the clean room. No, no, <laughs> yeah, particularly not, not. So you didn't you didn't manage to get in the clean room with uh, JWST? Uh, no, JWST. Interesting. During the time it was at Goddard was when we were installing all of the um, eighteen mirrors onto the primary mirror, and then installing the instruments into the instrument carrier, and then and then installing that instrument carrier into the back of the telescope. So that complete uh, payload, if you will, of telescope plus the four instruments was all put together and tested at Goddard. But all that work was done in a really big clean room that was uh, built for Hubble a long time ago. And it has really good viewing windows. So, you know, we get lots of uh, tours through with, with great views of when JWST was there just because it's, it's so big. Uh, a lot of times, if you like, I lead uh, tour groups through there with school kids and stuff, and you're pointing at some uh, instrument or small spacecraft in a big room, and it doesn't look so big, but JW was was so big, it was uh, obvious uh, how impressive it was. And for a part of its uh, build, it was turned so the mirrors were facing the viewing gallery. And uh, you could see, you know, the reflection off those big, uh, brilliant mirrors in the segments. Man, well, well, thanks very much for taking the call. It's great to, to actually speak to someone who's hard at work making all these amazing NASA missions happen. Big fan over here. 
I, I, I do. I, I've got to pick you up on a point earlier on. You, you do. You do know that that Britain's pretty good at sailing too, don't you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I better say that because I, I live. I live in a in a sailing town as well. Not that I'm a sailor. I, I come from Birmingham, which is just about as far away from the sea as you could possibly be. But, <laughs> but yeah. Well, li- you, I, sh- you should wander down to the docks on the f- first day of spring. See if, uh, if if you can get a sock burning going with a. Oh, damn. I've gone and missed the first day of spring. Maybe maybe they do it already. I'll find out. <laughs> so thanks very much. Right. I'll, I'll leave you to get back to your, uh, it sounds like dogs and dogs and birds in the background. Yep. Thanks, Matt. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Actually, uh, Jamie, you were wrong. They do burn their socks. I can't believe it. Uh, when it comes to ruling the ways, we don't rule in outer space, unfortunately. London-based OneWeb have filed for bankruptcy. I saw that. That's a sad day. Yeah, so sailing the very high seas has been a bit of a problem. Uh, yeah. and, it, and It's not they... surprising in this time, is it, Matt? No. Well, of course, it's massive disruption to all their supply chains and, and et cetera and co- with COVID-19. Now, do you think, Jamie, a load of companies will fold under COVID-19 and it will sort of – I think that there's a kind of – it saves the embarrassment of going bust without that excuse. So I think a lot of companies will throw in the towel – as a result, and maybe they needn't have, or maybe yeah, they could well, have struggled on for a bit. Yeah, I agree, I agree with you somewhat. I, I think it's just made a lot of people reevaluate um, what they what they want to do. Maybe yeah. it's time for people to kind of look at that. But yeah, it's going to be very big sad changes. Day. Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough time for the space industry and any other industry, if I'm honest. Uh, mm. But yeah, it's uh, you know when you're when you're trying to get large amounts of capital. This really is a bad time. So poor old OneWeb, it'd be very interesting to see how that actually plays out. Now, Eric Berger reported on this a couple of weeks ago, and I hadn't realised how harsh Gwyn, the steady hand at the tiller, shot well from SpaceX, um, how tough she'd been on. This is what she said. (laughs) She said, If you're thinking about investing in OneWeb, I would recommend strongly against it. They fooled some people who were going to be pretty disappointed in the near term. <laughs> you sound like Nanny McPhee. I yeah. love it. <laughs> maybe Shotwell does. Who knows? Brilliant. Uh, maybe we should try and get her on as a, for an interview. What do you reckon the chances are? I think we've ruined that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that's yeah. how we that's how we remain so independent. This independent is the of thing. thought. Uh, Jamie, I thought would be a really cool thing because I I follow old Mister Kipping, David Kipping, who we've he had doesn't. on as a, yeah as, as a guest on Twitter. Kippers, uh, and he he tweeted a paper that came out on April the first, and I must admit I did think it was an April Fool's joke at first. The paper in question was called "Resolving Exocontinents." That's continents wow. on exoplanets, Jamie, with Einstein yeah. ring deconvolution. Blimey, that's a hell of a title. It really is a hell of a title. It's a great paper, and the PDF is all in black as well, so it's it's quite cool to look at. Wow. I've put a link in the in the notes, but we won't get onto that just yet because I decided, well, let's have a look at the the, the kind of context that this is all all in. So I thought, let's do 
a telescope special. 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 <laughs> what do you think? I love that. Let's do it. Now, the thing that I noticed, Jamie, is that if you really wanted to be considered one of the science gods, you really have to have an association with a telescope. True. So Galileo, obviously tick. tick. Newton, tick. Huge tick. And Einstein, you might not uh, know this, but uh, th th you'll, you'll see how Einstein is also associated with the telescopes that I'm going to talk about. Matt, how good was Einstein? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, no. How good was Galileo, Newton and Einstein? I think we can all agree that Imagine is... Imagine them two on a, on a science quiz pub team. <laughs> I mean, they're coming in first, aren't they? There's no question. Yeah, yeah. I reckon Galileo, Newton... I they're don't winning think... the meat raffle every time. I don't think they'd get on very well. I think Definitely Einstein not. was a lovely bloke. Newton, apparently not so... I wonder about Galileo. But, it's hard to tell. Well, imagine Tycho Bray being the fourth member. It'd be oh, carnage. Oh, my God. There'd be God. noses cut off. <laughs> everything. Yeah. Well, Jamie, here's a, here's a little rundown of telescopes. We can really say that the telescope started in 1608. Okay. And this was from a Dutch guy called Hans Lippershey. And he... Uh, was the first person to patent a refracting telescope. He's unlikely to be the inventor, but he said he saw a couple of kids playing with two lenses and making things seem closer. Now, his mm. patent uh, allowed for a telescope that with times three magnification. So this is for looking right. at things like trees in the distance and stuff like that. So he didn't really think about its other uses. Now... In 1609, this invention had sort of spread through Europe pretty quickly. Everyone was pretty excited about it. And Galileo went, Ooh, do you know what? I'm going to build my own. And uh, he didn't look at the paint and he just, he just understood the principle and made a telescope that was times 10 mag magnification. And boom, modern astronomy was born. And uh, so, yes, Galileo was the first person to see the moons of Jupiter pretty almost immediately and the first astronomer to view uh, old Subaru through a telescope. Definitely. What a moment. Imagine seeing oh, that. Oh, my God. So, yes, he's the, I mean, that's just incredible, isn't it? So, uh, But the problem here is refracting telescopes obviously use glass lenses and, and glass has a problem. It, it gets Once it gets too big, it sags. Not only that... Uh, if you think of the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon cover, I think you're aware Classic. of it, then obviously light enters a thick glass prism and is split up into rainbow colours. Now, obviously the same thing happens as it goes through glass. Different colours get bent by different amounts, so you get this thing called chromatic aberration, uh, which isn't good. So glass has oh. a limit. Has a, has a limit of what you can do. So people started thinking, well, instead of using glass, why don't we use mirrors? And in 1668, this is 60 years later, Isaac Newton built the first practical reflecting telescope, the Newtonian. So, Jamie... Huge day. Yeah. So when I tell you that I have a nice eight-inch newt, don't freak out this time. Okay? You've said that before to a lot of the locals in Ilfracombe. Yep. We still got that court order? <laughs> I've got a couple of restraining orders. Yeah. Uh, this, of course, there was the 
achromatic lens in 1733 that that kind of corrects for your color aberrations uh then you've got your silver coated mirrors and your aluminianized mirrors uh, 1857, 1932. So those were improvements. So all of these kind of slight improvement may, meant that uh, your telescopes were getting bigger and bigger, not on an exponential uh, level, however, just incremental. And uh, yes. and so stuff was getting bigger. So there is a kind of practical maximum for all of this. So it seems that the maximum physical size for a refracting telescope is about a metre. So a big one-metre glass lens is about as big as it gets, 40 inches. It's pretty big. but That is big. Yeah, and, I, and there aren't many sort of refracting telescopes like that. But the largest single mirror in the world... Here we go, drum roll. ...is the 8.2 metre, or 323 inches, of the Subaru... Hang on a minute. Is this in <laughs> Chile? No. The VLT telescopes are also 8.2 metres and they are in Chile. No, no, the Subaru is, uh, is, yes. is on Manukei in um, Hawaii. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Um, Where would you rather go, Matt, to, to look through oh, one? Oh, no. Do you know what? I'd, I, that Tough is, goal, isn't that, it? That is super dream. Both are a dream trip, Manukei yeah. and, and Chile. Uh, I'd, I'd just absolutely imagine it. Just imagine it, how dry and... I've and seen... I, I've been very close to the border of... Metres from the border of Chile when I went to Peru and Bolivia. Um, but I, yeah, didn't step over into Chile because I didn't have enough time. But hmm. my God, what a beautiful part of the world. Well, yeah, we, we, we really need to do that. We we are planning on a 2021 American road trip. We've got I'll to tell do you that, what, Jamie. when we're allowed out of this cage... We are going to do some travelling, boy. Boy, are we coming out of this cage. So if there's anyone anyone listening in Hawaii or Chile, please let us know if we can come and visit you. Say hello. Do an interview or two. Yeah. There we go. Uh, We're going to be like one of Joe Exotic's escape tigers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. What an absolutely incredible documentary. Oh, my God, that's Still insane. can't get over it. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Anyway, Jamie, so, yeah. the, so the 20th century has been uh, – well, well uh, let, let's say that the, these are single mirrors, but the great thing about the mirror ones is that they have invented this technology of putting cells of mirrors together so you can make yes. much bigger refracting telescopes uh, – sorry, reflecting telescopes – by putting these uh, cells of mirrors together. Even James Webb Telescope has this cells of mirrors. But they're incredibly hard to to make. You have to have, A, the the precision of the mirror is insane, but you also have to have have computer control, controlling the shape and the position of these cells at all times. Uh, So, you know, they're phenomenally complicated pieces of machinery. So the 20th century is dominated by segmented mirror design so the largest at the moment is the gran telescopio canarias or the gtc in the canary GTC. Islands. yeah that is a whopping 10.2 meters or 409 inches but of course there's a whole bunch of telescopes that are being built right now that are going to uh, supersede that. So you've Here got go. uh, you've got the large synoptic survey telescope, eight point four meters. That's first light planned in twenty twenty. The giant Magellan telescope, 
which is going to be a 24.5 metre aperture and a 21.4 metre light gathering area. So Blimey. that's 2021 for first light and proper completion by 2025. James Webb Space Telescope is only 6.5 metres, I say only, but it is going into space. Um, so that solves all those atmospheric problems. Then you've got the European Extremely Large Telescope. <laughs> I love these names. I know, yeah, which, is carry thir- which is 39.3 metres. That's 2024. Then you've also got the 30-metre telescope, 30, uh, which is 30 metres, planned for 2027. But the overwhelmingly large telescope, the OLT, <laughs> was cancelled. Uh, so, Absolutely gutted. So if you actually think about this, and um, this is something that uh, I read about in, the, uh, in David Kipping's paper, which I'll get onto in a minute, which is really cool. Um, so th- there's a spiraling cost to all this. It's not it, so as you sort of get double the resolution that the cost increases quadratically. So it's that's a major downside, and this is often called the crisis in astrophysics. Physics. physics. Whoa. So it's it's a horrible uh, scenario. So for example, the 25 meter GMT. Uh huh was a billion dollars the giant magellan telescope a billion what about the t what about tmt the tmt the 30 meter telescope is going to be two billion dollars so you can see just for the extra five meters you're having to double your money right so a hundred meter telescope would be about 35 billion so it's completely out of the range of uh any budget budget that you could possibly think of you know much larger than nasa's budget and and a james webb space telescope is a huge chunk of nasa's budget so space observatories 10 billion for the james webb and uh, so that just goes to show that the future larger telescopes the funding of them is almost impossible mm. uh have, yes. have, have you heard of louvois I haven't. The Large UV Optical IR Survey Telescope, which is basically the successor to the James Webb. And, yeah, so that's supposed to be launching in the late 30s. Uh, But, yeah, getting the money for it. But that's that's in the process of being looked at. But, I mean, that will be able to look at things like the epoch of reionization, the galaxy formation, star and planet formation... Um, That's big, yeah, and and it will be able to look at exoplanets and and see if they're habitable or even inhabited. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Now you've piqued uh, my interest. Yes, can you see me smiling, Matt? Can yeah, you see it? I, I can see you smiling. So yes. Oh, so yeah. so, what do we do about this? What on earth can we do about this? Is there another way of? bending light jamie you can obviously bend it with mirrors you can bend Hmm. it with glass but can you think of another way that you can bend it and i'll give you a hint einstein's general relativity matt is it anything to do with einstein's general theory of relativity it is it is jamie well done yeah 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 is this also matt um what we came to be excited about when the uh photo of the black hole came into our lives uh it it is, but the photo of the black hole was done through interferometry. 
Oh, yes. It's much harder with visible light to do that, I believe. So you, you really have to go for single lenses rather than multiple telescopes and statistically gathering the data to get a sharper picture. What else? We can use gravity to bend light, right? And a scientist called Eshelman wrote a paper way back, I think in 1979, where he said, uh, and the paper's called Gravitational Lens of the Sun, its potential for observations and communications over interstellar distances. Seminal paper. And, of course, a 100 years ago, almost exactly a 100 years ago, in back in 1919, Eddington confirmed general relativity because he saw the deflection of starlight around the sun during the total eclipse on May the 29th. Ah. So the era of gravitational lensing had begun and now it's a hundred years old, exactly. So, yes, sun bends the fabric of space, and objects follow a curved path around it, the orbit of the planets being a particular case of that. But light is also bent by the curvature of this space-time, as Einstein predicted. The gravitational field of the sun can act as a spherical lens to magnify the intensity of the radiation from a distant source, right? Right? <laughs> And so if you put a spacecraft at that sort of focal point, yeah, then you can communicate over interstellar distances. Communicate, remember. You can observe, eavesdrop, and communicate as if you're inside, a, a sort of using similar equipment as you can on interplanetary distances. Um, when you're in the solar system, without this um, magnification of using the sun, you can communicate and look at things through telescopes. You'd pretty much have the same thing, but be able to do it with exoplanets if you use the sun as a as a magnifier. <laughs> that is crazy. So My head's bleeding again. Yeah, so at a 203 gigahertz wavelength, you're talking about a magnification of... 1,300 trillion times magnification. 1.3 quadrillion. That's right, yeah. Wow. Quick maths. Quick maths. Yeah, so, yeah, the, of course, the, the, the difficulty here, Jamie, and this is the absolute kicker, <laughs> is that this spacecraft, the, this focal point that the sun creates is 550 AU away. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, that, that's bad news. So, yeah, 550 AU orbit also takes 15,000 years. So essentially what happens yeah. is you can only use this spot to look at one object because if you want to manoeuvre to another place to see another object in the night sky, it would take you hundreds of if not thousands of years to sort of uh go around to to, to start looking at different things and just getting out to 5000 uh, to 550 AU by the way is ridiculous so just so you know the voyager 1 and voyager 2 probes that left in the 70s are only 148 and 123 AU respectively at the moment so about oh a fifth of the distance or a quarter of the yeah. distance at best. So, yeah, getting out there is really, really difficult. But Hashtag it, space is hard. Hashtag space is hard. Of course, you also got to take in th into account things like the solar corona, which obviously uh, limits the intensity of the radiation that you can observe 
so yeah, you got to look at it's it's quite difficult. But uh, an Italian astronomer, Claudio Macconi, Claudio mm. Macconi, uh, he actually suggested that you should be able to obtain detailed images of the surface of extrasolar planets. Now, if that doesn't pique your Whoa. interest, I, I don't know what it is. So I did a little bit of maths, Jamie. I did a little bit of maths. There we go. Uh, I genuinely got me a little spreadsheet out. So if you want to look at Kepler-438b, which, as you know, is probably the most Earth-like exoplanet we know about. Uh-huh. So if you want it to have a 1,000 pixels across its surface, you've got a diameter of 7,135 kilometres, and it's about 640 light years away. So you can calculate its angular size, which um, is about 1.2 times 10 to the minus 15 radians. And that black hole that you mentioned earlier on mm. that we photographed uh, was only, and I put only in uh, in question marks there, um, not in question marks, in speech marks, only, moving my fingers, 1.2 times 10 to the minus 10. So it, that black hole actually appears five orders of magnitude larger than than Kepler, <laughs> than Kepler 438b does to the eye. So yeah, 1.2 yeah, times away. 10 to the minus 15 radians is very tiny uh, angular dimension. Uh, so the resolution of your telescope, you would need a... If you use the sort of normal formula to work out um, the resolution of your telescope, at optical wavelength, say 500 nanometers, you need to build a telescope with a diameter of about 208,000 kilometers. So that's bigger than Jupiter <laughs> and about a quarter of the size of the sun. <laughs> So, oh my God! So it, it might be worth using the sun as a as a for gravitation uh, for gravitational lensing because um, obviously building a uh, building a telescope the size of bigger than Jupiter is is quite frankly preposterous and and as that a, would cost that would cost a fair penny <laughs> it would if we're particularly if a hundred meters costs you know thirty five billion and it's going up quadrat. Yeah. Going up quadratically, I think we can we can safely assume we can't afford to build that telescope. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on my tab. E even with the patron money pouring in, we wouldn't be able I to mean, do it. I mean, this is it. But, this is it. But nevertheless, um, uh, so this is one of the reasons why actually people looked at uh, uh, space missions. So there was one space mission on the table called the Fast Outgoing Cyclopean Astronomical Lens, or FOCAL. Or FOCAL. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was a space telescope at 550 AU. There we go. But, you know, there's lots of lots and lots of problems, <laughs> as discussed. One or two. Um, but there are some bonus, bonus uses of FOCAL. Uh, it could be used to measure stellar distances by parallax because you're 550 AU away from Earth. So you could probably precisely measure every star in the Milky Way from, from there. That'll do it. Yep. So that's pretty that would be monumental as a as a science catalogue. You can study the interstellar medium, the heliosphere, observe gravitational waves. Um, you can uh, check for variations in the gravitational constant. You can observe cosmic infrared background. So quite a few like amazing things. 
But this paper that came, just to make it even cooler, this paper that came out on April the 1st this year, a couple of days ago, resolving exocontinents with Einstein ring deconvolution. Ah, oh, yes. So instead of using the entire telescope as a single pixel detector, you could measure the Einstein ring's total brightness at various locations and using that information, the azimuthal variations in the intensity of the Einstein ring, that additional hmm. information they prove in the paper or, or set about to prove in the paper could improve the reconstruction performance of a sparsely sampled and time-variable image. To sort of basically use it looking looking around yeah so this uh, when you're looking at the light from this object behind the the sun using the sun as this gravitational lens it it doesn't really appear as a nice uh, picture at all on your on your detector no it looks like a ring around the uh, around the sun now this ring uh, isn't really a ring. It's actually known as an annulus, which is a uh, oh. uh, which is a you know the little white um, uh, well a polo I suppose is a three dimensional annulus, and yeah. uh, you know the little uh, white paper rings that you reinforce uh, binders with. Sure, that is as well. And so, if you look around that annulus and look at various intensities, you should be able to work out uh, a little bit more detail using this kind of, I mean, it's really complicated, this paper, in terms of how it adds up all this information using matrices and all this kind of stuff. But the, but the general idea is that you can use just a little bit more information in the Einstein ring, this, this, the way that the information is spread over this annulus to try and eke out a little bit more detail. Got it. I mean, I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> I might have to listen to this again, Matt. It's one of those episodes. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. When you view the Earth from a geostationary weather satellite, over the course yeah. of the day, something like the North American continent will have a different thermal response depending on on its the changing solar insulation that it has. So over the course of the day it's 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 absorbing heat and putting out heat. And you can you can see this effect from geostationary weather satellites which are currently exactly 60 years old the technology. Um, hmm. so over the course of the day you can see this variation. Now this is what they want to tap into in the Einstein ring. They think that they'll be able to do that and and find these thermal signatures of continents on Earth-like exoplanets by this close examination of the Einstein's ring and these little sectors around the ring um, uh, and, and check for these variations. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they do this matrix-based um, approach I mean, there are some there are some huge problems with this because, of course, a planet is spinning while you're taking measurements. Um, it's also orbiting and all those kind of things. So yeah. it's going to be extremely difficult to extract this information out of this uh, out of this circle of light. But they they think that this method actually um, 
will help do that. Um, Thank God. Yeah. So, but of course, we're still dogged with all the same problems. How on earth do you get a spacecraft, a telescope, an observatory out to 550 AU? It's absolutely ludicrous. Uh, it really is. It really is. And of course, you know, so it's it's really, 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 really hard. I mean, maybe you could uh, you could put a spectrographic mode into this, so you could look for things like um, photosynthetic vegetable vegetative regions with a red edge. Or, Who wouldn't do that? Or looking for extraterrestrial cities, looking for greenhouse gas emissions, or maybe artificial illumination during night. So you could maybe look for those kind of signatures in the signal. Matt, if you did find an extraterrestrial city, yeah, what's the first thing you would do to communicate? Well, you could actually use this station to communicate with them because you could use the sun to magnify your signal. Yeah. Uh, to to send them to send them a signal so you wouldn't need such a powerful transmitter so in in that sense it's quite cool isn't it um really uh, is but i don't know what i'd say i'd say guys can you hear me and then obviously we'd have to wait a few years while it came back guys uh if you'd like to become a patreon <laughs> um head over to <laughs> so yeah you could you could send that message they'd probably go what the hell yeah. is he talking about but, yeah, I mean, you, here's the other thing you could do as well that solves the only one target for this thing is that you could send it and look at, say, Trappist, the Trappist system, the Trappist-1 system, where you've got multiple planets. Look at each of those planets in turn. So you get a bit more bang for your buck. Yeah. But, Jamie, can you think of another way that you can bend light? Oof. I mean, there's there's a host of different ways, Matt. Have you ever tried burning anything with a telescope in the garden? <laughs> I, I have accidentally burnt things with a telescope in the garden, yes, while doing solar solar observations. Not my eye, exactly. thankfully. But, <laughs> but yes, Jamie, have you ever looked out in the evening and noticed that the sky changes colour? Yes. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Ooh. So, yes, obviously, the Earth's atmosphere also bends light because as light comes in from space through the almost vacuum of space, it hits the thicker atmosphere. And as light, whenever it hits something more dense, it will bend. And so, yes, the atmosphere of the Earth bends light. There we go, of course. So, David Kipping, his paper that came out last year is called... Yeah the telescope on the possibility of using the earth as an atmospheric lens so this this refraction through the earth's atmosphere has been known since the 18th century cassini 1740 mentioned it uh while looking at lunar eclipses and of course von eschelmann kind of hinted it in his 1979 paper as well but David Kipping, when he was studying at Cambridge University, doing his masters, he studied a phenomena called the Green Flash. Do you know the Green? Mm. Do you know the Green Flash, Jamie? Isn't he a Marvel character? He, I don't think he is. There's the Green Lantern and Flash. Oh, getting them confused. If you merge the two together, you get Green Flash. Now, I spent yeah. last summer trying to see the Green Flash, which is basically you look out and you look at a sunset, and at the just as the sun 
disappears, you might get to see a tiny green flash. Now, what's happening is... Wow, I didn't know this. What's going on? So what happens is the light's getting bent, and, of course, the blue light gets the least bent. So it should be the last light that you see, but it isn't because blue light gets scattered in the atmosphere very, very quickly. So the next one down is green, and that's what you end up seeing. So obviously you you see that the sun uh, gets redder and redder and more orange as it goes down to the to the horizon. Then, just as it's dipping under, you get to see this green flash. And I'm now going to spend the rest of my life trying to see the green, for flash. the green flash. Well, yeah, well, it, you know, it's actually a phenomenon that that's actually really really cool. And you could, oh, how rare is it? Well. There's a few YouTube clips of people filming it, and you just get to see this little green uh, element just as the uh, yeah. as it goes down. Of course, there's so much atmosphere that you're looking through there that the, the seeing is terrible. So it's very very hard to capture through photography. Plus the fact you know mm. it's quite hard to point your camera at the sun anyway. Um, mm. So th- one of the things that um, that David Kipping's really kind of uh, I really like him because he's got this real vibe of and he he's thinking outside the box. He's thinking about what natural phenomena can can you co-opt as technology to help you. And obviously when Love that. when we had him on the when we had him on the podcast, he was talking about his halo drive uh, was. which was using black holes as a means of propulsion. So, yeah, try yeah. and think of something in the universe that could help you. And there it is. Piggyback on that. Yeah. Piggyback on that. And then he also then he takes it one step further and he thinks, well, if an advanced civilization has figured this, what what might that look like? So with the halo drive, it would mean that you could tweeze apart black holes and actually <laughs> pull them apart or push them together using a halo drive as well. And maybe that would be a, yes. a signature of advanced civilizations. So anyway, when he was doing the maths for his green flash phenomena, he did an illustration of the Earth uh, in front of the sun, a solar eclipse, but the Earth as the eclipser. And uh, there was a green ring that he photoshopped in around the earth and that and that's because at some point out in space you'd be able to see the green flash as a a kind of similar concept to to an einstein ring except it would be uh, it would be um, refracted through the atmosphere of earth so that is pretty cool so the telescope looks at uh, yeah using earth and the earth's atmosphere to bend light and it turns out that if it's an earth grazing line you're about two-thirds of the way to the moon so you you, you don't have to send a spacecraft that far away and in infrared which i find phenomenal that it's it's like it's really cool that in infrared that you can put something on you can put a telescope on the moon it's, it's it's exactly the right place for it to be so that's hell really, yeah. But uh, Kipping wants to put a telescope out on the Hill Sphere, which is where the Lagrange points are. So we've talked about mm. obviously we've talked about that quite a bit. I almost feel as though we should have a Lagrange drinking game as well as an Elon Musk drinking oh, game. Uh, we'd be drunk. Yes. So the light's only going through the very upper part of the atmosphere. So that means that you don't lose it going through la- uh, clouds and the turbulence is less of an issue. It doesn't get scattered like we were talking about, this blue light scattering through the atmosphere. You can get rid of all that. So his calculation is for a one-meter hill radius telescope, you get an amplification 
of, of about 45,000 times magnification. He's saying to pretty much you can halve that if you're if you want to if you want to factor in all things like daylight scattering, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So he reckons that it creates an equivalent 150 meter optical infrared telescope. That's not bad, is it? That isn't bad at all, is it really? So that would give you basically this it would solve the crisis in astrophysics. I mean, obviously, there's a whole bunch of things to iron out, but hey. Apart from us solving that. I was hoping that you were going to solve it this weekend. I mean, I've got nothing else to do. That is true. And if anyone's going to do it, you can do it. It's going to be the, it's going to be the Franklin Russell rover. Wow, Jamie, there's lots of things to iron out in those things. But I think that's very exciting. I think David Kipping is a very exciting um, astronomer. What a great guy. And, uh, I mean, just... So forward thinking. It's brilliant. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool Cheers, Kip. And I love the fact that he's followed on from a sort of master's thesis that he'd sort of put behind and then has gone back to. It's really cool. Very Do you reckon cool. he minds that so, I call yeah. him Kippers? If you're listening, let let us know if that's annoying, and we'll uh, I'll stop I'll stop immediately. <laughs> oh, Jamie, 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 Jamie. Yes, I think that wraps it up. I think I mean, it, it does. This, is lo- this this was longer than I thought it was going to be. It's a long yeah, one. Fifty minutes. A bit a bit of, bit of telescopes. Now, Matt, um, feel free to edit this out if you don't agree. But I think, given the circumstances, that we should be donating all of our Patreon donations. Uh, for the foreseeable future to a charity, shall we just say the National Health Service or something like that? Uh, Because I think they need it more than us two idiots. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll put it out to the patrons and see which which charity they would like to like to let us to. know uh what's closest to your heart and we will uh we'll divert it that way for the remainder of this lockdown let's yeah. let's try and help as much as we can a lot of our space friends have been doing precisely the same thing our, our previous guest of dragon aerospace they're making face masks for the uh for the nhs so good on them i think it's incredible yeah my sister is a nurse and she's She's obviously having a tough time, but she's an absolute hero along with all of them around the world helping us out. So, yeah, thanks for donating. We will we will find out from you where you want it to go to. Yeah, it's, an, it's a massive big up from the uh, Interplanetary Podcast to all of those on the front line of, yes. of what is a pretty nasty crisis, let's face it. But here, everyone, here. everyone, stay safe and remember stay it safe. is it is going to be over and and this is a brilliant time to be out looking at the sky. So there are some definitely uh, every cloud has a silver lining. It really does. But remember, keep two meters away from Jupiter at all times. And remember to try and look at Venus in Subaru. Oh my God! Yes, it's going to be cool. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, bye, Spot Cats. Take care of yourself. See you soon, bye. See you soon, bye.